0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn.
0: This week on Meat and 3, we're turning an eye to food at its trickiest, from imitation olive oil to the pretensions of 3D printers. We were just doing like a birthday party for one of the employees, and we printed a steak just for fun. You know, a grape Jolly Rancher isn't going to satisfy your craving for, for grapes. So,
2: I mean, in a sense, it kind of multiplies the, the sensory qualities that we can love in the world.
1: So basically, you culture the cell. In a bioreactor, it grows, and then ultimately, at the end, you come out with a piece of meat.
0: Tune in to Meat in 3, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: I'm Alison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with John Foraker, co-founder and CEO of Once Upon a Farm, John has spent more than 30 years in the natural and organic food industry, running businesses with a sharp focus on sustainability and social responsibility. He was the longtime leader of Annie's, which IPO'd in 2012, before General Mills acquired it in 2014 for $820 million. For the following three years, John ran Annie's and also advised General Mills' small business incubator, 301 Inc. John took the helm at Once Upon a Farm in 2017, and is a beloved advisor to a number of emerging brands. Welcome, John. I'm so happy Happy you're here. here. Um, You are a bit of a big deal in our industry, um, incredibly well-respected, and I think um, for a number of things have just been a great voice uh, for many years. So it's an honor to have you on the show.
3: Yeah. Well,
2: thank you. Okay. So we're going to start. We're not going to start with childhood because there's honestly too much. Um, It's been a long and storied career. So we're going to start with business school. And um, I believe you started your first company in 1994. So tell me a little bit about that and how you ended up at Annie's um, five years later.
3: Okay, so my career before uh, business school was I was mm-hmm. a corporate banker, and I worked in the wine industry and in forest products, and became fascinated with brands because there were some wineries I was working with that were selling the same wine um, under one brand at you know seven ninety nine a bottle, and that's all they could get, and the same wine in another brand, and they mm. could get nineteen ninety nine, and they were making a lot of money at higher margins, and so it was my first exposure to brands, and I thought that was really interesting, and I wanted to get out of the banking world. So I went to business school at Berkeley in between my first and second year there. I got together with uh, a few people that I had known from my banking days um, who were in the wine business and in the restaurant business um, and started up a company that was called Napa Valley Kitchens. And um, it owned a brand called Consorzio, which was kind of the first really Mm. flavored olive Mm -hmm. oil that Mm -hmm. came into the market. And now now that stuff's kind of everywhere and kind of has been, but it right. was really innovative at the time. And it was sold at um, places like Neiman Marcus and mm-hmm. Williams-Sonoma and um, the early Whole Foods stores. And so we grew that business up, and I um, didn't come in really ultimately to be the person that was going to run the day-to-day operations. I was more right. on the finance side of it, but I, I rolled, evolved into that role, and I had no idea what I was doing, and it was a really good yeah. long period for me.
2: And then
3: how did that land you at Annie's? So um, a few years later, after that business had grown to kind of north of 10 million and had had plenty of struggles, (laughs) um, I started looking around for other things for that group of investors and that Mm. business to invest in or potentially buy. And Annie's was a public company. Um, It was public, but you didn't know it because it didn't trade on an exchange. It was... I had gone public in a thing that was kind of hip in the 90s called a direct a DPO, a direct public Is that offering. like a stock
2: or it no?
3: some money. <laughs> um, no. I was going to say, no, like, what goes around comes in, around a yeah. little
2: bit, huh?
3: <laughs> yeah. There is that in fashion and also also in finance, I think. But basically, it's like you would you would go public um, by selling like $600 of stock to, you know, a few thousand of your right. best customers. Right. Um, um, and it was great in the sense that it allowed you to kind of crowdfund the business. It was bad though, in the sense that once you were public, you had all the yeah. obligations and legal responsibilities of a public company, but without the right. publicly traded market. So, anyway, they had um, been growing this, this brand for about 10 years. Um, they had some really smart people that were running it and involved in it. And um, I, I put together a group that invested some capital um, and gave them the ability to start accelerating it. And then it wasn't really until I came onto the board that mm-hmm. was in 1999. And then in about 2004 um, is when I started running it officially and um, brought it out to California and um, the rest. Yeah, the I history. mean,
2: let's talk a little bit about that history because Annie's was, I mean, the, I don't know what it was before you got there But it sounded like, you know, it was a new type of company. It was kind of breaking um, a couple of different barriers in sort of the organic, non-GMO, social mission kind of world. Was it that way before you got there or did you, was that you?
3: So the brand had, it's really interesting, the brand had... um, I wouldn't say it had like a stated mission statement or purpose statement that was really well-developed, but what it did have is this like brand ethos that came across mm-hmm. in the packaging. And if you looked at the, right. it was all Mac and cheese and you looked at the packaging and there'd be like an anti-war mm-hmm. version and a free Willy Keiko version. And who was a whale that, you know, people right. want to see. I remember free Willy. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in, environmental, environmentalism and things like that. And so it stood for all those things but this is remember back before there were there was organic was a thing but it wasn't um like as recognized Mm -hmm. a thing it was now there was no federal standards those came in about 2002 so it um it was a what do you call like a natural product line this is also before gmos were a thing that those really became a thing in the mid 90s so Um, it was the first, one of the first brands, um, that launched what you would call like a certified organic line of products in mac and cheese. And, and then as the, as we grew the business and we took it into, um, you know, soon after, um, we took it into, uh, snacks with Mm -hmm. uh, cheddar bunnies and then bunny gram. And then as the, as the business grew through the, the, you know, the, following you know years you know gmos became a bigger and bigger issue because they were becoming effectively dominant in a bunch of uh crops and we um we were really vocal around um consumers right right to know and um and, and so yeah we took we took an kind of an activist position on a bunch of things that we thought were important for the food system And even things around Mm -hmm. social issues like Mm -hmm. pride and um, and just like I call them more progressive issues that we knew that our consumers really cared a lot about. And we were willing to take public positions and take a lot of criticism and really didn't give a shit whether consumers, whether people liked it or not. We knew that was how we felt. And it was also how we believed most of our consumers felt. And that's the way we grew the brand. It was kind of like doing yeah, what Yeah, I was going to say it did. reminds um, me
2: it reminds me of that. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. Ben & Jerry's was was the first brand that really captured mm-hmm. my attention years before that way and I admired a lot of what they did and so we took a lot of lessons out of that book and in terms of what the the ethos of the company was and the corporate values and mission that it stood for and we grew that and we held on to that and made it bigger and stronger and stronger as the business grew which was really a key part of why it was successful. And even
2: today, I mean, you know, people talk about sort of like the Annie's model in a way, you know, everyone, I mean, not as much maybe now, but even a few years ago, everyone had that page on their pitch deck, you know, which was like Annie's is to craft and then Justin's is to Skippy. And, you know, it's like, it's that same page. Like why, what do you think, was it, why do you think it was able to sort of establish that like new lane for CPG businesses? You know, it, it, like, what was it? Yeah. Or, or what were the combination of things, I guess? Well
3: Yeah, I think it was a combination of good decisions, luck, mm-hmm. timing. Um, but basically we were one of the first brands that truly mainstreamed right. organic in the U S Um you know, we weren't alone. That actually was happening in a bunch of different categories. Stonyfield mm-hmm. was doing it in over in yogurt. You know, Applegate was doing um, it in not in organic per se, but like in right. you know antibiotic free meats and things like that. Um, Horizon was doing it in dairy too. So, so we were one of those brands that came out of the that dusty little mm-hmm. corner at the back of the grocery store, which used to be the natural and organic set. Mm-hmm. If you ever mm-hmm. used to shop that, um, and we for years really tried hard to get category managers and buyers and retailers to put right. us in the mainstream aisle yeah. right next to crap. And it wasn't really until that happened that the business just f- flew into another place. And then, um, and then we also uh, were successful extending the right. brand into other places in the store, which was kind of um, a, a unique thing about the brand that I think people found appealing, particularly. You Know people that wanted to yeah. grow a, a big business
2: from yeah, definitely. Uh, from I'm gonna, I have a lot of questions about innovation. Um, okay, so then you were at Annie's for 10 years. I know there was like you went public and there's a story behind that, which you know people can read, it's it was interesting. Um, and then and then General Mills came along. Um, was there, did you? have hesitation about selling it to sort of like one of the big big guys i mean was there was it a thought in your head that maybe you didn't want to do that it was
3: yeah it was something i had thought of for many years obviously and i'd always believed that i mean if you just look at the packaged food space there's very few independent companies that go from the size we were you know to a billion north and still stay private i mean it's the structure of the industry. And so I knew there was a pretty high probability we'd be owned by a big Uh CPG company at someday. And so that informed all of the decisions we made about mission, vision, purpose, core values, and how we wanted to just imprint those on the DNA of the brand and culture of the business so, so deeply that if somebody, if somebody bought the business, they would feel that compelled to continue them. And So when, when the process came about and General Mills became the buyer, you know, obviously I spoke with them a lot about these things and they were fully on board with like, we know this is why this brand is so special and why people love it. And we want you to help us, you know, make it a lot bigger, but not compromise anything that stands for. And that's exactly. Yeah. Which is amazing.
2: And then, I mean, you know, there are a lot of stories about acquisitions and, founders slash CEOs stay on for their requisite number, you know, 30 months or whatever it is, and then, and then go, but you didn't, um, you stayed and you became sort of an integral part of what feels to me like that 301 Inc., you know, that their acquisition strategy for brands like Annie's, um, and so what was that like for you going from, you know, being at the helm of this very, you know, crunchy, almost, you know, big, but, you know, company to then yeah. going to General Mills and, and getting into their ecosystem? What was it like? What did you learn? What were the high points and the low points? Yeah.
3: Yeah, so um, it was very interesting and I learned a ton. I originally was planning to stay for about a year. That was kind of the structure mm-hmm. of the deal that we had. I ended up staying three years for a few reasons. One is I didn't really feel like the integration was at a place where I could step out without risking the business not staying mm-hmm. you know, on the track. Because integration, especially systems integrations, yeah. are so complicated yeah. and hard. So um, I wasn't like, Hey, I've spent most of my career working at this business. I'm going to jump off at the end and have it like not work right. the way it's supposed to. Um, so that was part of it. But the main reason I stayed is because I love the people I loved. I was working with so many amazing smart people and I was seeing the CPG world from a, from a perspective. Mm-hmm, I had never mm-hmm. seen it before from the inside of a big CPG versus yeah. you know the outside in a challenger brand. And so I learned a ton about, How um, you know about marketing, about technology, about manufacturing and scale—just lots of really, really interesting things that built on what I had done before. And um, General Mills is going through a really interesting period where they—they were well aware of all these trends that were impacting food. In fact, arguably Mm they've been way ahead of them in organic because they've been buying organic brands for years. Um, And so you know, it was a unique position for me to kind of help them think about how to make emerging brands successful and how to think about, you know, taking this great, great company culture and just tilting it a little more toward entrepreneurial thinking and, you know, speed. And so that was a, that was a fun project. And I think I, you know, obviously I made a lot of friends there, but I think I left um, an impact too. But then it came to a point where I was really, I really did feel like I wanted to go do Right. My next thing and some opportunities came around and I ended up jumping What
2: Why, why do you later. think, I mean, you know, I think a lot of us kind of give ourselves comfort in this industry that, you know, doing what we're doing and as exhausted as we are, even though it's a lot of fun, we're like, well, because, you know, they, they, they have to, they have to acquire companies like ours because they're just not as good at innovating as challenger brands are. And, you know, the normal answer is like there are 30 people to make every decision. They can't pivot as quickly. But if they are thinking about these things ahead of time and they do arguably have some of the best marketing and, you know, finance and everything teams, why do you think that the big CPGs just aren't as good at the innovation piece? Why aren't they just like popping out great brand after great brand?
3: Yeah, um, yeah, it's uh, I could spend a lot of time on that one. Um, But just the highest level, it, it goes to, um, it goes a lot to culture and willing and willingness Mm -hmm. to take risk. And, you know, um, the type of person that is willing to work for no salary and deliver cases out of the back of their trunk at, you know, 10 o'clock at night. Um, to try to build against a dream is a bit different than the kind of person who's who potentially is inside of a big CPG trying to, you know, innovate and Mm -hmm. launch a new brand. And so you get a different,
0: you just get a different
3: mindset um, and willingness to take risk. And, and then also, I think, um, obviously, the, you know, the venture early stage, you know, capital is Mm -hmm. much higher risk than later stage stuff. And so you just get those kinds of things that make it harder. And, um, and, you know, also, you know, if you look at, at any category and you look at all the innovation that's going off, I mean, a big C B G could make one or two bets on innovation in a category, but there might be 50 brands out there making small bets right. against it. And it's hard to yeah. know which one's going to win, yeah. right? So sometimes it ends up being the one they create right. and oftentimes it's not. So
2: Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we're just going to go through all of the different sort of buckets of this whole crazy industry that we're in. We'll be
1: right back. just egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the united states bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy to use just egg you can get started with a free sample just head to ju.st slash h r n that's ju.st slash h r n made from plants Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. That's ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and french toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appetit says, It's so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn
2: I'm back with John Foraker from Once Upon a Farm. Um, Okay, so you've seen a lot uh, over your 30-year career, and I guess I'd love just some high-level, sort of off-the-cuff thoughts about the industry now, your thoughts about all the venture money that's poured in, maybe your thoughts about, um, you know, digitally native brands, you know, I think I mean, there's so many things that I could ask you about, but one in particular is also just mm-hmm. in my experience the our grocery store buyers you know a lot of them are wonderful people. It seems like there's a little bit of a disconnect sometimes between the merchand- like the merchandising teams and the strategic initiatives of the of the of the you know of the companies um which, which creates sort of this weird thing, which is why I think a lot of the CPG world was disrupted by direct-to-consumer brands because they frankly didn't want to deal with distributors and brokers and you know, all the buyers, et cetera. So I guess I just, it's a big question obviously, <laughs> but just some thoughts about you know, where, where the industry is now, a little bit of context and, and where you think it's going.
3: Sure. So like, just just culturally, like in this industry, I I think it's worth making a point. And, you know, people have been around the industry for a long time, or a student, like talk to people who have, have picked this up. But what's the the natural organic, uh, and like the better for you personal care space is the same. Like this industry has like Mm -hmm. a soul. you know so many people were attracted to it early in their entrepreneurial days in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 00s and beyond um because they wanted to make a positive impact mm-hmm. on the world as much as they wanted to build a business you know sell it for a lot of money and you know do whatever um i think that there was this natural um culture of that in the industry where people would support each other as you would have initiatives like I was involved with at Target called Made to Matter, where you had frenemies, like in multiple (laughs) categories, people who normally fought tooth and nail, you know, in categories working together on initiatives. It's really unusual and unique. And I I hope that it continues. And that's one of the things I continue to remind people. And I do feel like the space as more and more like, Mm -hmm. call it professional capital and um, more kind of freshly minted MBAs come around who are like thinking about just the business part of it and not the, the improving the lives of consumers and the world around them part. Yeah. I worry about that, the, about the industry changing. The other thing that, that high level that I think underscores like my whole career is just that everything happens mm-hmm. so fast now. It's, it's really hard to understate, um, you know, back when, um, I was involved in my first company and then in the early days of annie's things just were so much slower there was a lot less competition um technology wasn't anywhere near it is today this is pre-social media (laughs) like now now when somebody has a new good product idea you know you you're gonna very likely have four or five competitors within a year um and back you know in the the early 90s you could run with a great idea yeah. for multiple years without seeing that so that's that's a big difference and so it it has it has a lot to do now with like okay then in an early stage company what are the things you need to think about that are geared to that faster movement what goes along with that which is also worth saying is that back when you know I was working um with the the early Annie's folks and even in my business before that, it was, it was almost unheard of. You never saw a brand go from like zero to like a right. hundred million I mean, in three or four years. It just wasn't because much, right. the points of distribution, yeah, the mm-hmm. distribution wasn't there. The, you, mm-hmm. There was nowhere mm-hmm. to put it. Um, you couldn't even get the message out because right. you couldn't afford to do, you know, carpet bombing, yeah. advertising, etc. So, but that's changed now. Like now you see it's not unusual. I mean, it's statistically unusual, but it's not unusual to see, um, brands get really big, really fast. And so that's right. been the flip side of it, which is, you, it's, there's a lot more opportunity to do that than there ever was. Well, two, I guess so that,
2: that gives me two questions. One is, okay, so, you know, if you have a great idea and things move as fast as they can, you know, what are your suggestions to founders for building moats around those ideas? Like how do they, if they're going to just have like five or six people that they're competing against almost immediately you know in a way that would suggest that you should raise money pretty fast and pretty hard right and like but what what are the other ways to sort of build that protection around your brand
3: yeah well i think the to me always the most important protection is is just building a deep right. meaningful brand like one that really connects emotionally with consumers um that to me yeah. is the best protection you can do other things too, like own your own manufacturing, you can own IP, you can own a bunch of stuff. But in the end of the day, I think the best the best um, thing to focus on for most companies that are starting in this space is um, to build a really meaningful brand and and to get it right. You know, Use that first time when you're really small to run just a series of controlled experiments and really get on to like, what is it? Get on, get on to product market fit and and really just like get on to what you what what is going right. to be your core like that to me is the most important thing. I think too often um, and I'm I'm certainly guilty of this throughout my career. Too often people say, well, I've got this great product. I've got this great packaging. This is going to be the next great thing. And I go big and I'm getting out there. And the truth is, like, you need to make sure the right. consumers are with you and that you're actually really creating something that's that can scale to something really big and so there's a lot of great resources out there my favorite book which i've plugged many times is james Richardson.
2: i know i had him me, on the, as a guest before he wrote the book because i was yeah. a linkedin like accolade yeah. for you know a couple of years there yeah
3: yeah yeah well, yeah no he, that that work yeah. is so amazing because it 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 looks at the commonalities of brands that have gotten really big and what was it that they were doing in the early times to figure it out. And so, but I think a lot, you know, too, too often, I think people think of being small and early Mm -hmm. as a negative. It's actually a positive because when you're really small and early, you can do a lot of stuff quickly and figure a lot of stuff out while you're still under the radar. Um, It's only once you get on the radar that you're, you're finally on, you know, some, PowerPoint in some big CPGs, you know, innovation <laughs> <Right. change> desk. <laughs> so get a lot done before well, you're on so the radar.
2: so this, this kind of segues to something that I read that you, um, that you wrote or that you were interviewed about. And I, th- I think it's a nice little segue because you talked about at once upon a farm, when you rolled out in 2018, it was pretty aggressive. You had, uh, you know, wide distribution, lots of SKUs, um, I think my understanding is you figured this will just hit it hard because of your experience and, you know, Jennifer and, and sort of the, you know, the sort of aura of amazingness around it. And my understanding Mm -hmm. was that it did that in some places, but like all other businesses, it kind of took its time a little bit to find its stride, um, is that an accurate yep. way to to say
3: it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We did hear what I advised right. everybody not to do. Um, and, but so it wasn't, but, it, but we did it okay. intently. <laughs> it wasn't a mistake. Um, the reason that I took that path is because um, I believe the products were mm-hmm. close. Um, you, you know, your right. products are never done. Yep. Your packaging is never done. That's a reality of this industry, but. I figured they were pretty good, we had, um, we did have really solid data, we knew how we were selling and we thought that we could do really well by going big and we did, I'd say about 90% of what we uh, went out into with that big push of initial distribution mm-hmm. stuck. It didn't stick necessarily at levels that were lighting the world on fire, but it stuck enough that we made it through the first or second right. category review, which is always like that's yeah. when the guillotine yeah. is swinging over your head. <laughs> so. Um, and then we learn, we use that base, um, and time to continue to evolve and improve our products. Um, we've, um, like, like I've said before, like it took us a while to figure out exactly who our consumers were and why they were buying us. And once we knew that we were able to, to improve the products in ways that were really meaningful to them. And now the business is just on fire and, um, but it t- it took three years to get there, um, and you know, uh, it yeah. was a big bet, and we made it, and I'm glad it ultimately worked out. But it yeah. was far from perfect, and that's the truth about entrepreneurial ventures like yeah. they're never perfect. Like anyone goes in thinking there are is just either arrogant or or hasn't talked to somebody who's done it because it's basically like three steps forward or two steps forward, yeah. one step back, and constantly learning. From what's not working, pivoting on that and improving it and in in every yep. aspect of the business, and that's what, this this venture has been
2: noted well it's interesting because now. going back to sort of your thoughts about now you can you know you can be a hundred million dollar in sales in three years first of all, no one necessarily knows the back story, right? I think a lot of the brands that are right. you know quote unquote killing it they might be spending a lot more than that in marketing, for example, or, you know, so, right. but I do think it sort of presents this, um, false sense of all I need is a great idea and a great package. And before we know it, I'm going to be, you know, a hundred million dollar brand. And, and I, that's kind of unfortunate. Right. Cause I think it sets founders up for feeling pretty bad about themselves when they maybe just double in a year,
3: which, you know, is yeah. pretty good. Um, yeah. Well, you you just made a really, really important point. And let me just yeah. come around on it and say something about it. So, you know, Annie's had, um, I'd say a, a great outcome right. for a brand, right? I always think it could have done been a lot better because <laughs> <laughs> I know all the things that we did that we could have done a better job with. But, but the point is like, it right. didn't happen overnight. Like, I I would, I always say that the first 10 years of Annie's, like before I got there was arguably Mm -hmm. the most important point because there was so much learning, experimenting, like just DNA building that was going on Um, back then. You could do that with that time we've already talked about. But if you look at every single like quote unquote, like massive Mm -hmm. success story and you go talk to the founder and ask about the first two, three to five or even 10 years of what they were doing, you're going to find a lot of this kind of thing like meandering a little bit figuring it out like trying stuff that either worked great or failed and and just improving it's it's the the overnight success in our industry is it's it's a basically mm-hmm. unheard of and to the extent there is anything like that i would argue that it's probably not as right. lasting um as you would think because it may be writing a fad that's going to be yeah. dead in three yeah. years um so, so anyway, I just think every entrepreneur should, uh, should know that that early struggle of figuring stuff out is, that is the way great brands are built. It's not, there, there are no right. shortcuts to do it. It's a lot of learning and figuring stuff out. By definition, that's where really great brands
2: are. No, going, I think, I mean, that's, that's great to hear. And, go, and going back to sort of figuring it out, the who are they and the, and the why are they buying us? You know, how would you advise Mm -hmm. early stage, you know, we're not, we're not buying a ton of data. We can't do a ton of whatever, you know, how, how would you advise really getting clearer on who and why?
3: Yeah. So, um, it doesn't take a lot of money. It takes a lot of listening and, and connecting pathways to be able to get consumer feedback. Obviously. Having a direct to consumer presence is an enormous advantage Mm -hmm. to do that. I mean, having empathy for consumers and understanding what is it, what is the challenge they have, and how are they using your product to solve it? And a great example, you know, a real life example at Once Upon a Farm is when Jen and I joined Ari and Cassandra over here in 2017. Um, I did a bunch of media interviews and stuff. And if you go back and look what I said, I I said, we're creating a fresh baby Mm -hmm. food company. We're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to do what fresh pet did in the baby or in the pet aisle. We're going to do something similar to that here. Um, There's a lot of elements of of the, that, that turned out to be right. And we, we are doing, but there's, there's a couple key things that we learned over time that really informed it. First of all, even back early on, the majority of our consumption right. wasn't babies; it was
2: right. <laughs> it was kids.
3: You know, basically, um, basically one through eight. And once we learned that, and really, you know, talked to enough consumers, and um, you know, followed up with people who had bought on the website, figured out what their households looked like, and all that stuff, we started asking ourselves about like, what does the packaging look like? What are we communicating? Mm-hmm. And We've we've gone through a couple of packaging upgrades. One was a big rebrand that, or just a brand improvement that we just did. You can see it on our website, and it it's more modern. It's um, there's more right. kid mm-hmm. fun in it. Um, and um, and you know, for the most part, uh, other than there's a, a segment of our business that is clearly targeted to baby first foods. Those are going to say right. baby all over them. But a lot of our product right. doesn't do that anymore. And and our for the last year and a half, our business has just accelerated like crazy because yeah. of that key insight that we then brought into how we're communicating. What does the packaging say? How are we selling it yeah, to retailers? That, et no, et that makes a lot of so. sense.
2: Okay. I'd like to get into something that I, I'm i generally kind of confused about <laughs> and that's, that's pricing, So just to give you, you know, I won't name any names or throw any retailers under the bus, but basically, you know, you agree upon a price essentially with a retailer and you, then you go out into their stores and some of the stores have you at that price and some of their stores have you at like $2 higher than that price. And... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Then at the same time, they're holding us to velocities that we could absolutely nail at the six ninety nine dollars price or the five ninety nine dollars price. But at a $7.99 or an $8.99, it's, it's going to be very hard for us to kind of hit them. And um, yep. then what we end up doing is, you know, aside from trying to get them to, you know, however they can come down on those prices. And usually there's like a DSD involved or something, right? Then we end up throwing a lot of promo mm-hmm. money at it to to sort of artificially now mm-hmm. bring that price back down to the initial price. I, I just need your, I need, I need you to be sort of like <laughs> a guide here. I, I am confused about it. I don't know what the strategy should be. Should we just be throwing all our promo money at it to make sure that that consumer ends up at that price point? You know, how do, how do we handle this? Right.
3: So um, I would say this is a very common um, challenge in early stage uh, brands, especially that brands that are going
0: uh, mm-hmm.
3: through distributors and, and um the reality is until you think of it this way, like every place where you're on the shelf and you have certain shelf presence and adjacencies to other brands and a certain price point, think of that as an experiment. Mm -hmm. Like that's a point, right? Um, And it, in some cases, you know, the retailers know, um, maybe it's the footprint of the store they're in. Maybe they know Mm -hmm. their, their shoppers are super affluent. Maybe they know the velocities are not going to be materially different at at eight ninety nine uh-huh. versus seven ninety nine, so they're just going to margin up. It happens all the time, and so the the way to 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 deal with that is to get the best data yeah. you can on how differently you turn at those yeah. different prices and different promotion strategies. And look, I mean, this is not easy stuff to figure out. You know, I I um, yeah, I have a lot of experience with this. I have people at my company had a lot of experience with this. It took us two years um, and a lot of syndicated data to really, really mm-hmm. lock it down. So, but you can get most of the way there Looking just at by the numbers. Using your- Yeah. Yeah, you know, looking at the numbers and then using common sense and going in and saying, hey, look, um, you know, at $7.99 or at six ninety nine, dollars here's what we're doing every day. Here's how many dollar. here's how many, you know, dollars we're bringing to the category. And if you, if you think of us at that margin, you know, um, you're going to make more money that way than you are by pricing us up slower velocity and a higher ring and a higher margin. And so it's just showing that story and the the way, but an interesting way to think about that too, is try to find a retailer or a buyer that will really be an Mm -hmm. evangelist for you. Um, you know, you'll find some buyer somewhere who will be like, you know, I really believe in this and I'm going to lean into the price point and I'm going to go. And when you yeah. build that story, um, other retailers will see it. You can sell against it. And that's how you help. That's how you kind of pull yeah. through that. But you know, it's, a common, it's a common mistake in this industry to, to blow your brains out with trade spending to try to solve for that. And it most often, um, it's not very successful. There are a lot more efficient right. ways to do things. So
2: there are yeah. two directions that I want to go right now. One is the evangelical buyer direction, and the other is the trade spend direction. So we're going to do both, but you tell me which one you want to go with.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think both. you need to do both because, like I said, you run a bunch of experiments, right. figure stuff out.
2: Like So on the trade spend front... And, the, yeah. you know, what well, one thing we very quickly figured out, you know, at, at Target, for example, we figured out that like a two-week promo for us was an absolute nightmare because we basically completely sold out week one and they just were not able to restock the shelves week two. And so we now only will do sort of like quick spurt promos because, you know, we're a refrigerated brand. Their merchandising team isn't used to that kind of movement, I guess, or, or, you know, whatever it is. So we've learned about promo frequency um, in, in that particular retailer from experience. Do you have any sort of general promotion, trade spend, you know, bumpers that you would put on a brand that you would say, you know, you should assume... 35% in your first, whatever at this retailer, but 15% here, is it, is it totally dependent on category? Like how, how would you talk about trade? Strategy? Yeah.
3: It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's really hard to generalize, but, okay. uh, but I will. Um, so if you think of, think of a year and think of like weeks of promotion, you know, like I'd say a, a low, you know, if you're, if you're promoting at all, there are some brands who think they don't have to promote at all. And ultimately at, maybe there are, Uh I haven't really seen any, um, but, but like 12 to 14 weeks would probably be like the low end. Like, Oh, you wanting to have some kind of, um, some kind of price reflection. Um, there are categories where it's much higher than that. You know, it's in in the twenties, um, particularly some snacking categories, really competitive snacking categories. Um, I think, I think the biggest, um, thing to figure out is, Start with fewer weeks mm-hmm. rather than more because you don't want to be locked in. Try to get to a place where um, you're doing it by, you know, MCBs and chargebacks with the retailer, so you're you're not paying for, you're not subsidizing OIs right. into the distributor. Um, but when you're really early, it's hard to do right. anything other than that, and it's in some ways more efficient to do that. Um, but but I would also say like the the other thing is experiment with different ranges of price reduction. In many cases, especially for like premium products, it's not really the depth of the discount. It's more just getting enough of a discount there, like a quarter off or 50 cents off where a tag goes up. Um, you know, more than 50% of people finding new stuff uh, is because they see it when they're shopping. And, so if a tag helps them see it and then drives initial trial, if they right. like it, they'll repeat. So that's the way. Yeah,
2: I remember when I first started, um, we were in the Chobani incubator and there was a, a thing about, you know, promotions. And I was like, wait, doesn't that kind of diminish? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I, I was totally new to the industry. And I just was like, if you're always on promotion, won't people just wait until you go on sale to buy you, mm-hmm. you know?
3: Yeah, no, you can. Yeah, you can absolutely train people to do that and it's not a good thing. It's really right. hard to untrain right. them once you've trained them.
2: Um and is there a general um, sort of would you say a range like we I don't know, in our quarterly letter this this past quarter, I felt like you know, our gross margin was was really good and then I and then I had that second thought like uh-oh. That probably means we didn't spend enough on trade. Like that was my second thought. Like do you have a you you really mm-hmm. should be um, above I, a certain yeah, amount think, spend.
3: I think no no, I mean I I think for for most brands that are spending efficiently and have figured it out should be spending kind of in the okay. low okay. teens.
2: Okay, so probably. that's good.
3: All right, um, low teens maybe maybe a little bit lower than that, but certainly. If you're spending um, on just the variable trade side mm-hmm. up in the 20s and 30s, which a lot of people are, you haven't right. figured out your pricing yet. You either have too high of an everyday price that you're subsidizing mm-hmm. the trade, or you need to get to the right balance of everyday price and, and promotion to really drive the right cycles of trial and repeat right. with consumers. And again, this is it's easy to talk about it, but until you just run the experiments and do it, it's... That's how you figure this stuff out, and you know there are there are price points and multiples and magic. There's just different ways to for consumers to perceive price, and you need you know get with somebody who's got some experience in the industry who's seen a lot of different things and ask them like, what are four or five things right. we could try um, in yeah. a limited place, and then learn from it. Again, it's all about trying seeing what works, doing more of it, trying, failing, yeah. and
2: not doing that again. But learning. So going back to the evangelical Basically. buyer, um, I would say our yep. evangelical buyer was our Northeast uh, Whole Foods buyer. He he was, yep. he's been on the show. Everyone knows, like, I talk about him frequently because he, he, he taught us how to put the pouches in corrugated. He helped me find a distributor. Like, he loved the product and continues to really stand by and love the product. And one of the challenges that, you know, we've had, and I think a lot of sort of, quote unquote, better for you or natural or whatever you want to call us these days, brands have is that there's almost like a, well, if you do great at Whole Foods, that's not necessarily going to translate to the conventional consumer. Um, So how, I mean... Do you think that that still sort of exists, that there's this sort of you build it in a natural, you move to conventional, then you like go over to sort of the bigger mass accounts. It feels like things are blurring a little bit. I don't know. Is there still sort of that um, that big difference between the conventional consumer and the Whole Foods consumer? Like how did, how did, how did you think about it?
3: Um, I think that, I think largely the same rules still apply with, you know, with some, I, I think it rather than like channels, think of it as just like a pyramid of consumers. And at the very tip of that pyramid, you have the most foodie, the most, you know, spendy, mm-hmm. the, the, the most adventurous. Some people will try anything that's new. And then the further you go down that pyramid, the more you get the opposite of those things, but the pyramid gets bigger. So there's mm-hmm. a lot more of them, right? Every, I've never seen a brand um, and maybe there's one out there and somebody can educate me. I've never seen a brand start at the bottom of that mm-hmm. pyramid and move up. Okay. Generally you start at the top and move down. So the question then is where are those consumers? Places like Whole Foods have a lot of them. You know, many retailers, um, big national retailers have stores right. where those consumers are too. It's all about picking the right stores and um, and putting yourself in the right place to succeed. I would say that one biggest change about the like kind of conventional path that I would point out is, to me it's DTC first in almost any category, no matter what, if anyone says I'm starting a company, I say, what's your, start online and then figure out what your next step is. And that's new, that's new in the last few years. And, um, And I think it's still the right, it's absolutely the right way because there you can really target the tip of the pyramid uh, the people most likely to buy. And most importantly, you can Right. Talk to and that more. the
2: why. And, and you would give that advice even if yep. people were doing frozen and refrigerated. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 900%. I mean, that, it mm-hmm. is interesting, right? Even, even building the model we're like, we obviously like the bulk of our revenue is wholesale. Um, but we do have, you know, a, a D to C channel, um, and we're trying to figure out right now, and I think I think we're onto it. You know, like why a consumer would buy us directly. You know, th- what what's going to be the offering that's going to be sort of distinctive and special to them. Um, but it's mm-hmm. you know the. I wish there was a way for the financial model to be kind of like blended. It seems like it's very bifurcated between sort of the the way that we think about wholesale, what's above the line and below the line, and the way we think about D to C and, you know, ads and, you know, just, just my little thought.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I know it's, it, um, it's hard because you're, you're blending two business models that have very different kind of metrics together and you're saying into one business, right? Um, but, but I think that's the, the reality mm-hmm. of the world we live in. And,
2: it's an omnichannel um, world.
3: You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an omnichannel world. And um, one of the smartest people I, I've known, Vishal from Obvious Ventures, was the first person that used the term for me is like, are you building a mm-hmm. modern brand? You know, if you're building a modern brand, you know, it's inherently right. omnichannel and it's inherently got these, you know, different pieces of its business model coming yeah. together into one. And then how do they support each other in both of those ecosystems to create something that's much more powerful than you can do
2: either one? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so back to innovation, because one of the things you said early on was that Annie's had this sort of, this ability to extend into other categories. Um, How do you think about it? You know, I've gotten great advice that's like, stay in your lane, build your consumer relationships in fresh Don't confuse buyers. You don't want to be in multiple parts of the store until you're, you know, you're really a brand that people recognize. And on the other hand, there's, you know, this sort of rush to innovate and become a platform. You know, there, there's so many different ways to think about it. Um, How would you advise me to think about it?
3: Yeah, I would advise um, you and anyone else is like the, the first and most important thing is to find your core. And, um, at Annie's the core was obviously Mac and cheese, right? Um, once you have your core, your core is something that can be big Can you can build the brand around, it can mm-hmm. pay the bills and gives you the ability to fund, you know, without raising ridiculous amounts of outside capital and taking the dilution to help fund some of the innovation right. that you want to grow. I think it's a common mistake for small brands to expand too fast mm-hmm. in multiple categories. Most often, the times that doesn't really end up working and just yeah. dilutes everybody. So I would be really focused on um, on right. finding your core, and you know you may have it already or you may not. Yeah, you, know, you have to figure that out. Yep. Um, but that's okay. the way I, think I love
2: about that. It. And um, we're winding down a little bit on time, but one of the things that I know that you have done over the course of your career that I know that you really enjoy doing is building teams, um, you know, building culture. Um, you know, you talk a lot about sort of the role of companies today in a very politically divided country, much more so I would guess than even 30 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, there's a lot going on with social justice and, you know, I think a lot of us have very, um, I think we have a lot of personal strong feelings about politics and social injustice and yet there is this like it is a little scary to put that out as a brand and on the other hand we all kind of I think a lot of my friends and I know that that is also part of who we are as a brand and as a company and that our consumers also generally will be aligned but I'd love to just hear your thoughts on on that.
3: Yeah. um, I, to me, it always comes down to just Mm -hmm. authenticity and like, you know, if you're the entrepreneur that is building a brand and you want to imbue into that brand, um, you know, attributes and things that, that it and you stand for. And if you think that's the right way to go about it, then you should do it. And. Consumers will, you know, either like it or they won't. Um, I always feel like to me, it's always people who say that business shouldn't be involved in politics, just that's just yeah absurd. I could use a lot stronger language than that. But business has been involved in Since politics. Since there was forever. business or
2: politics, right? And,
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I always to me, I always when when um, when I was at Annie's and we would take positions on stuff that would inevitably just like create conflict and we'd have people say we're going to boycott you or this or that. Mm -hmm. I'd say, freaking do it. Like, go ahead. Like, and the reason is because we knew that the things that we were standing up for were values that we authentically held. We knew that many, maybe not all of our consumers authentically shared that. And it was, it's rooted in things that are so simple. Like, you know, our audience are the people buying Annie's, are you know, families with children. Well, why wouldn't we be a company that would be supportive of uh, public policy that is supportive of families with children and the challenge is that you know at, at all economic levels? Like, those that totally makes sense, right? And other people that don't like that, great, don't buy us. That's I always said that. I respect your opinion, I totally respect you. <laughs> I respect your, I, I a thousand percent, respect anybody's uh, w- w- desire to disagree with me on anything. So that's fine. It's a free country. Go buy something else. And, and if you, if you do that and you do it authentically and repetitively, you can build a lot of, you know, trust that way.
2: So then going back to building the team culture, right? So we, uh, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast. We are a very small team, but in COVID, fortunately, we've been able to hire three new people and hiring, you know, on Zoom, onboarding people on Zoom, you know, it's, it, it put a lot of stress on us and we really wanted to do it well and we wanted to do it right. And now all I keep thinking is like, gosh, we're so little, what happens when, you know, you're 15 people and then you're 50 people and, you know, so are there are there sort of guidelines that you've given yourself wherever you've gone that that you use to inform the way that you you know can build a company quickly and and add roles quickly but keep the culture very strong?
3: Yeah, I think the most important thing is be very specific about what you want. What what is the purpose of your business? What's yeah. your mission? What are your core values? Like just articulating those so crystal clearly up front is really important. And it doesn't mean that those won't evolve over time as you grow. They could, and it's fine. Right. But be really specific about that. Make sure that the people you're hiring understand those, and that you're you know built bringing people in that are support supportive of that mission and and growth. And that's a single to me. That's the single best thing you can do to make sure that you get the Foundation for the right culture at the beginning, and that you continue to build that as you scale and grow, which is obviously right. challenging.
2: But it goes back to sort of also building that DNA that is so that is so embedded into the brand that even if it does eventually get acquired, it still it still holds on to itself. Um, which is just a yeah. function. It's like raising a child, basically. It's just repetition, repetition, repetition. Holy. Yeah.
3: Hundred percent. That's a good way. Yeah, I
2: definitely think of this business as 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 one of my children for sure. (laughs) Even like when you know when you have a bad day, and then you're like, no, 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 like let's look at the big picture. You know, is is it is it going in the right direction? Are we are we better than we were? You know, last year this time. You know, all that stuff. So I've found those those tools for myself to be helpful. Um, Okay, anything that you want us to avoid us founders of these emerging brands, you know, we're all coming out of the gate. We're all trying to figure things out. You know, what, what would you like us to avoid doing? What do you want us to know? You know, what's your sort of sage advice?
3: I'd say the single best, like just business advice I could give would be, um, try to figure it out at a very, very early stage before you raise a lot of capital and do mm-hmm. yourself like crazy. Um, and that, that's just a, such a common mistake. And everyone talks about it, but you see it again and again. And so again, that's like, try to figure out product market fit, try to figure out that you, who your consumer is. You, know, you can do that in 30 stores. You can do that in, with a few hundred customers online. You right. don't need to be visible even. Um, um, And I think that there's too much money chasing too many companies and encouraging them to do things Mm -hmm. before they should. So that's what I worry about. And that's what I encourage everybody to do. Just be patient. Try to preserve as much of your ownership as you can until you figure that out and then raise the right amount of capital at the right time to really blow it out for sure.
2: Amazing. That's how I think about it. All right. Well, this has been incredible. John, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing all of this with me. Um, Pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Matt, thank you for engineering. Um, (laughs) Amazing engineering job, as always. We didn't actually have any problems other than my dog barking. Um, And um, all of you listeners, thank you so much, as always, for all of your comments and your um, notes. And I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce.